Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. We got an important show today because we're going to talk about one of the key issues that I think should be on everyone's mind, and that is Chinese interference into our electoral process. Who better to get than Terry Glavin, who's been on the China story for years and years, a phenomenal phenomenal resource that I love to be able to call on. I'll get the latest on that from Terry. Uh, We're also going to talk to Don Velo about different seasonalities in the market. Specifically, I have always enjoyed this trade. It is buying wholesale gasoline when it's the end of the winter drivers driving season and you sell it once the summer driving season really starts in earnest. We'll get his latest take on that. Plus a lot more. My goodness. I also got Victor Adair who's been calling this turn date in the markets very accurately. I'll get his update on where the markets say interest rates are going. I'll further that with Michael Levy. I've also got Ozzy Jurek here with us. Uh, maybe a little tit for tat coming out of the U.S. By the way, we say, hey, we don't want U.S. buyers in our real estate market. Well, we've got you know a prominent member of Congress saying it goes the other way too. We'll do more on that. But first. Okay, looking at Justice Paul Rollo's report on the Declaration of the Emergency Act, what we found out is the Ottawa police didn't handle the truckers' convoy well. Neither did the RCMP. The media and politicians, especially members of the federal government, inflamed the situation with their rhetoric and false accusations. And the solution, drumroll please, was to suspend the individual rights for 38 million Canadians from Prince George to Gander. In fact, de facto confiscation of bank accounts, unprecedented of people who had no direct participation in the convoy, but supported the legal protests after months of COVID restrictions. They were charged with nothing and had no legal recourse. Now, look, I get that there was no way that Justice Paul Rollo's report was going to satisfy everyone. Come on, the whole issue is so emotional. The sides have long since been drawn up, and I think this is a key thing to understand. There are those in favor of individual rights and those who support the security state. We're going to see that played out in the climate change too. But it's no longer the old left versus right. No, come on, look at NDP leader Jugmeet Singh clearly demonstrated his contempt for the millions of working class men and women who participated in and or supported the convoy. You know, given the inquiry was called to examine, in quotes, the basis for the government's decision and the appropriateness and effectiveness of the measures, I don't know about you, I was left with a lot more questions. I mean, what about this? The prime minister has acknowledged only a small subset of the truckers' convoy who were bent on serious disruption. Only a small subset were. How did that justify suspending the foundational rights of 38 million Canadians? I mean, there's already been a ton of commentary, so I'm just going to address two quick aspects here. First, Justice Rollo acknowledged that the vaccine mandate for cross-border workers, which the prime minister himself had already strongly rejected a few months earlier as being divisive. But along with the inflammatory rhetoric used by the Prime Minister, NDP leader, used from day one, were the catalysts for the protests. I mean, come on, right out of the gate, before the convoy had got anywhere, they weren't even close to Ottawa. You had the Prime Minister, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, calling the supporters of the convoy racist, misogynist, white supremacist. There wasn't a shred of evidence to support that while they condescendingly dismissed the people who have participated as having unacceptable views. But more importantly, maybe, is they had no interest in dialogue. Well, that's a good way to have a confrontation. But here's the part. Their attitude is part of a bigger picture. P.J. O'Rourke observed, the principal feature of the progressive left is sanctimoniousness. The prime minister's response was the Canadian Hillary Clinton version of calling those people who didn't support her, deplorable. 
And it was an attitude that was shared by the majority of the media, by the way, who covered the convoy. Not all, but the majority. It's an attitude that permeates, though, the progressive mindset and agenda and explains a great deal of what goes on here. Much like the Governor General, here's an example. Julie Payette gave an infamous speech at the Canadian Science Policy Conference in Ottawa. She broke tradition by delivering a diatribe that included demeaning anyone who questioned man-made climate change as well as anyone who believed in God. Uh, Other examples, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, declaration regarding holding a referendum on the electoral reform, which he'd promised. He was talking to a group of students, I think it was Ottawa U, where in essence he said that there would be no vote on electoral reform because people couldn't be trusted to vote the right way. And here one more, because it's one of my personal favorites. The infamous statement by the Liberal campaign manager at the time, Scott Reed, who said the big problem with the conservative daycare plan to give uh, parents $1,200 for each preschool child is that they couldn't be trusted not to spend the money on popcorn and beer instead of their children. But my point, it's an attitude that permeates a heck of a lot of people who want bigger government because simply put, they know that government knows best over individuals. It's a worldview that's not even impacted, not dissuaded in the least by this huge litany of mistakes and missteps and gross uh, problems. I mean, look no further than the disastrous climate energy policy in Europe. But the lack of respect for alternative views permeates much of our public uh, public debate. And what we saw it again was reflected in attitudes toward the truckers' convoy. For them, there's only two sides, theirs and the wrong one. Okay, but what about the emergency itself? I don't want to rehash what uh, Justice Rollo has said. But a, a great example of this, so, is when they said that the entire convoy was getting financed by foreign interests. Well, that proved to be completely false. Justice Rollo said, in quotes, no basis for that. By the way, but those are falsehoods, which Attorney General Lametti said played a major role in the decision to declare the Emergency Act. I'll leave that, though, because I want to want one last thing here, and that is this confiscation of personal bank accounts of completely innocent people identified through the use of a stolen list of convoy supporters. They were not charged with anything, and they were denied any legal recourse. There is no aspect of the government's response to the convoy, by the way, that received more attention outside of Canada. Why? Because we're living in a time of increased distrust of government in the first place. Boy, that's been the big impetus for digital currencies like Bitcoin. And I think of like short of being arbitrarily jailed and not afforded the assumption of innocence and right to a fair child, I think confiscation of private property at the whim of government is as serious as it gets. But my sense is it was way beyond what most of us thought could ever happen. Your money gets frozen because you had a cousin who supported the convoy? Come on. But then again, there's no indication that the government understands the importance of trust and confidence in the economy and financial system. This was a huge mistake with far-reaching implications and one that was absolutely not justified by the circumstances or evidence. Hey, by the way, a reminder that next Saturday, March 4th, Ozzy and I will be doing the Polar Plunge. And yes, we finally had some people step up to say they're going to join us. we got Dave Braithwaite and his wife, uh, and uh, Wilson, Scott and Lee Grant, Re Yanita. They've all said they'll plunge with us. We're going to be at English Bay. I'll send them the details. English Bay next Saturday about 1 o'clock. Ozzy and me, my brother Gordon's going to join us. Uh, so I'm thrilled with that. But, you know, in the meantime, what you can do 
is support us. I understand you don't want to get in the cold water. I don't want to get in the cold water. But if you're willing to support us, get friends involved, your donation is much appreciated and it's simple to do. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. It's right there on the front page. Press on, be part of the Money Talks team and donate. And uh, I could go on and on. In fact, I probably will later, but go on and on about the importance of supporting people with intellectual disabilities, supporting the volunteers and the, the families of, these, uh, of all of our athletes. I hope you do. I hope you find it in your heart. I hope it's affordable too, and it's not for everybody, but to make a donation. The Special Olympics and the Polar Plunge. And in the meantime, just imagine me all week shivering with fear. You know, every time I get a little discouraged about the media coverage in some aspect, I, I thought, as I mentioned earlier today, uh, Justices Rollo's report on the Emergency Act wasn't a shining gold star for what's going on in the media. I always think of a few people who are doing brilliant work, uh, important work to boot, everything I hope the media could do. Uh, I'm thinking Sam Cooper's done some great uh, work on the China file, but also led by Terry Glavin. You know, Terry, I hope you read him in the National Post. I hope you read him in the Ottawa Citizen, and I hope you go to his substack, The Real Story. That's one word, realstory.substack.com. Uh, does great work and has been doing great work on many files, but I'm talking about the China file today for a number of years. He's the person I went to when I had questions. I, I go to his work. It's well-detailed, uh, well-resourced, as typical of his work. As you can tell, I'm a fan, and I'm thrilled that he's with me here today. Terry, thanks for finding time. Well, it's nice to talk to you, Michael. Is this another escalation here? I'm talking specifically about the report. They put it in the front page of the Globe and Mail. I thought that was a good sign that someone thought it was important of Chinese interference, which we already knew in 2019, 2021. But we were more, uh, I guess, uh, nuanced in exactly what was happening. Maybe you can bring our audience up to speed. Yeah, I. Uh, it's um, the Globe and Mail has taken this very seriously. I'm very happy to see that Bob Fife and Stephen Chase have been on this file for a while. Um, and you're right; we have been we have known about this. Um, uh, we knew about it when it was happening in 2019 and in 21 and 2021. Um, what's interesting is that in, in the work that Bob and Steve have, have, have recently done is that it, it confirms the work that, uh, that, uh, Sam Cooper had done for global about, and it's a really about the extent to which our intelligence agencies were aware of these extremely elaborate and completely illegal, of course, uh, interventions in the core of our sovereign democratic processes in this country. Um, and the, 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 the thing to keep your eye on, I think, is that CSIS knew, uh, the communication security establishment knew, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency knew, um, and knew in great detail, granular detail, that the Chinese government, the uh, embassies and con the embassy and consulates in this country, the uh, Communist Party of Ch the Commun Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department, were determined that the Liberal government would be re-elected in 2019 and 2021, and that cons the Conservatives would be defeated. And the the the, the news the newsworthy bit is that. CSIS knew, the intelligence agencies knew this was happening. 
and um, actually reported all the way up to the Prime Minister's office and the Privy Council office. So the government knew. And all, all along, uh, from, the very, the, from the very beginning of these revelations two, three years ago, uh, the Trudeau government has been dismissing this stuff. Oh, it happens all the time. Oh, yes, well, you know, um, there wasn't really a big deal. The outcome of the election wasn't, uh, wasn't affected. And I think, uh, you know, a significant, well, certainly the polls seem to show that an over, overwhelming majority of Canadians do regard this as quite scandalous. Um, I mean, really quite scandalous. And so that's what's going on now. And, and I think a lot of the really sordid connections between um, the, the prime minister's office and uh, cabinet uh, and uh, Chinese business interests um, I think this is really starting to um, sort of emerge in rather sharp relief. People are beginning to notice this now. And that's, I think that's an extremely healthy thing for our democracy. Well, I mean, you think you've been writing, and it's for a number of years, but I'm going back in my mind to uh, 2017 when CSIS, uh, David Vignon, the head of CSIS, was making very clear warnings about China. I mean, it, it, what's killed me about this is, as you say, we certainly had an inkling, maybe not to the degree of the, you know, the specifics here, but our reaction to Chinese aggression, including the, the infamous hostage taking, Michael Kovar, Michael Spavik, has been so muted. Uh, I'm thinking other things like when the Five Eyes Intelligence Network at times excludes Canada. Yeah. You know, I mean, wh where's the alarm bells for that? And how do we have so many apologists? That and maybe some of them are on the Chinese payroll for sure, the Communist Party payroll, but others aren't. And I'm just, I, I agree with you. I'm thrilled that it's getting this kind of attention. Yeah, it it is odd, isn't it? It's um, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I think the way, the way um, this particular government's uh, intimacies with a hostile foreign power, you know, a state capitalist oligarchy. Um, that has um, designs on Canada's natural uh, natural resources, um, and uh, and so on, has become normalized over the years. I remember, I'm thinking now, this is thir 12, 13 years ago, Anthony Campbell, who had just resigned as the um, head of the intelligence secretariat for the Privy Council office, told me the words he used were, "We're sitting, we're sitting ducks." We're sitting ducks, is what he said. And what he was talking about was Canada doesn't really have a capacity to deal with um, na uh, national security uh, challenges like this. Part of it is a simple matter of definition. Part of it is because politicians kind of like to make things up on the fly. They don't like to be boxed in. They like to be able to define what a, you know, what a, what a national security threat is themselves, you know, on a political basis, if it's an investment in the oil industry or something like that. And this kind of, this kind of strange uh, uh, ambigu ambiguity uh, allowed uh, the Trudeau government particularly uh, to essentially um, proceed with a, with, with, with a very explicit, I mean, it's in plain sight, um, uh, program of, of, of replacing the Harper government's vision of Canada as an energy superpower with a completely different vision of what Canada should be. This idea of Canada as a post-national state um, and the idea that uh, the, the, the road to 
uh, middle class prosperity in Canada, uh, that that road went through Shanghai and Guangzhou. That we should essentially integrate our um, our economies with the with Chinese markets and Chinese capital. And you know, everybody thought this was kind of cool, right? Like, wow, man, we're we're all going to be rich and we're all be kind of groovy, and you know, it's kind of like. I don't know, you know, this this strange kind of avant-garde uh, notion that, um, you know, we can we can have friendly relations with China and we can thumb our nose at the Americans. And, um, you know, even in the early days of the Obama administration, they kept telling us, you know, they warning us away from Huawei. They said, look, no, no good will come of this. <laughs> and uh, we thought we were clever. And look what's happened. You know, I mean, the kidnapping of the two Michaels, the fact that they, uh, they, 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 they have significant influence over significant sectors of the economy and certainly the political economy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are those of us, it's a small town, that, you know, like there's Bob Fife, Steve Chase at the Globe, Sam Cooper at Global, Jeremy Nuttall, Joanna Shue at the Toronto Star, um, you know, Doug Kwan and Tom Blackwell at The Post and myself. So, I mean, we're all feeling a little bit vindicated at the moment. <laughs> you know, it's important not to get too haughty about this. But, but I mean, let, I, let me I, ask you, you feel vindicated, but you, I can't believe you're surprised. I mean, you're not. I mean, you're not saying you are. I'm just saying for any of us, this is the Communist Party of China, for God's sakes. This is the greatest human rights abuser. They don't seem to have problem enslaving Uyghur women, chaining them to beds, as the BBC outlined, and then raping. You know, I mean, what do we think they're not capable of here? I, I just think anyone, the naivety in dealing with this group. I mean, what is our? <clears throat> we have two huge geopolitical issues right now, obviously Ukraine. But the other one, we stay up at night worrying about them going into Taiwan and taking over the, the semiconductor industry. I mean, whether that happens or not, but I meant, my goodness, has, has there anybody been more naive or more accommodating than Canada when it comes to the Communist Party? Well, we certainly, Canada certainly has distinguished itself among the liberal democracies of the world. Um, it's different here. It, the, the, the Trudeau government um, among the G7 countries has been... Um, precariously uh, promiscuous in its relationships with the Chinese Communist Party. You, you know, we have been excluded from um, uh, a lot of the five eyes. You know, we were, that, there was, that was a threat that, you know, we would have no access to the usual intelligence uh, sharing with the United States, Australia, Britain, New Zealand. Uh, we have been excluded from Asia, pardon me, Indo-Pacific trade uh, initiatives, um, that uh, the White House particularly has taken. Um, we, we really have been the odd man out. And I think what's, what's interesting is that, you know, it's the way you respond, Michael, you've been onto this, you understand this, you've noticed this. And, I've, and, and, and one of the things that I, I've concluded is that the reason, you know, people will ask me, they must have something on Trudeau, right? Like, like, what's the deal with the guy? What's, what's, what's wrong with this government? And the, the, the thing, to, the thing is that actually, this is just how they roll. It's bred in the bone with, with, with Justin Trudeau and his family and his circle. You know, the Montreal circle, the Gretchen's, the Power Corporation, SNC Lavalin, the Canada China Business Council. 
This is just the way they think. They don't think the way we think. They have a completely mm -hmm. different conception of what, what Canada is um, and what, the role of government. Uh, then, you know, well, by the poll, if the polls are anything to go by, about 87% of the Canadian people, um, they don't find, you know, like the, the, on the issue of, for instance, of interference in our election, our elections, two years ago, after disgracing himself um, in the Meng Wanzhou matter by taking China's side, uh, John McCallum, our ambassador, to China had to be defenestrated by um, by um, Christian Freeland. It wasn't the first time Freeland has put her foot down and said, "Either this changes or I go." To give her her due, um, admitted openly in an on-the-record conversation with the South China Morning, a reporter from the South China Morning Post, that he had been um, advising his former interlocutors in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in how the Chinese government should comport itself and conduct itself during the election campaign in such a way as to ensure or more readily assure the re-election of the Liberal Party and the defeat of the Conservatives. He said this openly and on the record. It, th th this is the thing that people, you know, this wasn't a memo or a text message or an overheard conversation or a CSIS briefing document. This is an on-the-record interview, and I think the thing to notice about that is that he doesn't see anything wrong. He didn't see anything wrong with it. He just thought this was normal. Um, that that was kind of you know a normal kind of a thing to do, and 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 I think it really illustrates how different um, those of you know you and I and eighty-seven percent of Canadians are from a lot of the, these guys in the Canada-China business circle. They have a completely different conception of, of Canada as a nation, and um, they, draw, they draw no distinction between uh, in foreign policy between uh, these hideous torture states like China and, uh, you know, troubled and interesting and colorful and crazy democracies like the United States of America. And I say there is a bloody difference. And uh, most Canadians can understand that. Mm -hmm. But these guys don't see it that way. So that's the thing. The reaction here has been uh, not surprising again. I mean, I, I thought the pro correct political response from the government would have been a lot more alarm bells, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, it hasn't been. It's, you know, how did CSIS possibly leak this to the Globe and Mail? Like, that was their story. Yeah. You know, the thing that... I mean, plug I, the leaks. Yeah, I, I've been astounded, actually, which leads me to wonder, where does this end? I mean, if this wasn't the ultimate, if you know what I mean, like clearly having designs on impacting our election uh, and, and being successful in some areas. And, you know, yeah. our Canadian Intelligence Service, the military of Canada, you know, the parliamentary group that meets on this. Uh, the list is so long, and yet we continue. I mean, that's another dismissive attitude towards the seriousness of this. Uh, as you say, sorry, I'm going on and on, but the no, list is fine. a long one. The list is a very long one yeah. here, you know, uh, and they just keep dismissing, including on this. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, well, you know, it, it, it does take a lot to surprise me. <laughs> it takes a lot to surprise me on this file. But I'm with you on this. I am actually quite, quite, quite astonished. Um, 
I, I guess I'm astonished at the at at, at the fact that the, the obviously the Trudeau government thinks it can get away with this line, right? Uh, the line being, um, you know, nothing to see here. This is what we've seen since last fall, particularly. Nothing to see here. This is normal. Countries do this all the time. Uh, you know, we've been concerned about this and we've been talking about this for years. No, they haven't. That's actually a lie. Uh, uh, not and 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 or not and. It's inaccurate, you know. Uh, this is the latest thing. It's it's essentially, oh, yeah, and and also people who raise alarms about foreign interference in our election are essentially engaged in a Trumpist strategy, you know, a very specific reference to Donald Trump in his, you know, they stole the election stuff. That people who are concerned about, uh, you know, election integrity in Canada are engaged in a Trumpist strategy to undermine public confidence in the out, the outcome of democratic elections in Canada. Now, that's pretty sinister to, to not only suggest that you're some kind of MAGA nutcase if you're worried about the overwhelming evidence, smoking gun evidence of China's interference in our elections on to the advantage of the Liberal Party, and then, as a kind of a defensive line, and then the offensive line is essentially this is fake news. This is what the liberal government is saying now. Well, you know, you know, there were inaccuracies, and they won't say what the inaccuracies are. Um, and I mean, there aren't any. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know what it's going to take for this. Well, the question is, and and I don't think the answer. I don't think there is any answer. A reasonable answer that will cast this government in a flattering light. The question is why? Why are they trying to downplay, dismiss, cover up evidence? Uh, I mean, smoking gun, slam dunk evidence of the Beijing regime's interferences in the 2019 and 21 federal elections, disinformation campaigns propaganda campaigns, threats, um, you know, mobilizing um, uh, Chinese foreign students uh, as campaign workers, uh, paying them through, you know, third-party corporations, um, paying people to make donations to the Liberal Party by topping up, you know, the difference between your tax deduction and the, Mm -hmm. the full amount of your donation. I mean, it's all there. And the, the thing is, the, the, to, keep, to keep your eye on, I think, is why is the government trying to pretend that it isn't? Why is the government trying to say, don't look at this? Uh, and you're a bad person if you do. Um, I, that's the thing I find astonishing, that they think they can get away with this. Uh, and I'm wondering what the outcome or the implications are uh, for CSIS, here are these people doing dedicated work for the security of our country and getting so outright dismissed, you know, yeah. and especially in this way, like actually accusing them of some of this stuff is false, you know, it's misinformation, I mean, and others. Of course, the Canadian military issued their warnings too. Um, 
let alone, as you say, the small list of journalists who've been doing night and day kind of work on this file. I, I just, boy, where does this all lead? And I, I don't have an answer, but it scares me because the escalation is obvious. You know, I can go back yeah. 10 years and they'll start escalating. Oh, now they're, now they're trying to influence our elections aggressively, illegally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no walking back from this. There's no, yeah. there's no walking back from this. The, uh, you know, where, where does one proceed? Where does one go? I think there's a lot of people, and I've noticed this, there's a lot of people in the Liberal Party who were never really happy with this, right? With this kind of thing. We have to remember that when Trudeau was elected, like Trump, by the way, in the same way that sort of the Trumpists took over the Republican Party, when Trudeau was elected, 70% of the Liberal Party were, uh, were Trudeau recruits. This was the Trudeau Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of people within the Liberal Party uh, and, and the House of Commons uh, that have watched what's happened in these kinds of national security uh, uh, matters and are, are very, very alarmed. And, and they, you know, they t- you, you talk to them every once in a while, they'll talk to you on the record, off the record, uh, you know, Liberal MPs, former cabinet ministers. Um, the Conservatives, I think, really need to get their act together on this one. Um, they did have their act together. I mean, I got to say, I mean, I'm kind of a lefty, right? You know me, Mike. You've known me for years. Yeah. But I tell you, you know, when Aaron O'Toole was the leader of the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party developed a position on China, on human rights in China, on democracy, on Hong Kong, on the Uyghurs, on Chinese interference in Canada, on the relationship between the Canadian state and Chinese state-owned enterprises, about a page and a half uh, going into the election, uh, O'Toole went into the election, of a China policy. And that China policy was supported explicitly by, you know, these sort of young, woke women, the Hong Kong activists, to, you know, the older conservative mm-hmm. pro-democracy people, Chinese pro- pro-democracy people, Amnesty International. I mean, you, it was nonpartisan, solid I mean, solid uh, liberal democratic position that uh, Aaron O'Toole brought to the the 2021 election. And the Liberal Party mentioned China in its entire platform in a subordinate clause of a single sentence. Hmm. Um, And I think the Conservatives saw what happened in the election. They saw that there was all of this interference. Um, People in uh, Aaron O'Toole's uh, campaign group figure that at least they lost at least nine ridings because of this. And there are actually, I have to, I have to say, this isn't pleasant. There's some people in the in the conservative party who think, well, you know, it's kind of like Martin Koshan said, uh, the former liberal cabinet minister um, on Chinese uh, 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 digital intelligence initiatives and in Huawei. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. And I think there's some, there are people in the Conservative Party who think this is a losing battle, that we can't be alienating uh, the friends of China in Canada and Chinese proxies and the you know, big section of the Chinese business community that has tied its interests to the Chinese Communist Party. And I think Conservatives really need to, I mean, the New Democrat, this, the NDP is a write-off. Heather McPherson is a good person. They're foreign affair, their foreign affairs uh, critic, but the party itself is just, a, it's comical. Um, but there's a solid core of conservatives who, uh, who, are, who, who 
have adopted a very, very stern and solid and principled position on this question. Um, and I think they really need to start throwing their weight around a little bit. I think uh, 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 Pierre Polyev has got – somebody's got to box that guy's ears, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to wake up, you know. I mean, he said all the right things, but he's got to start listening very, very carefully to people like Michael Cooper and Michael Chong and others in the party. Um, I mean, just as a Canadian, I don't, I'm not a partisan, right? I don't. But as a Canadian and somebody, I mean, I do wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit. I'm a human rights guy. I'm, a, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a fellow with the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. It's kind of my beat, kind of my thing. So you can take what I say with a grain of salt. But uh, I think as a Canadian, um, this is it. This is it. This is the point of no return. Mm-hmm. This is the point of no return. Uh, I, and I have never seen anything like this in all of the years I've been covering this issue, that there is a rupture uh, between the prime minister's office and the entire intelligence community. And there are CSIS people who are obviously and clearly uh, memorizing uh, Section 15 of the Official Secrets Act. I can't remember what it's called now. It's inter- what's a, yeah, the, the modern version of the 1984 version of the Official Secrets Act. Section 15 sets out uh, exemptions to the uh, you know, very, very stiff and stern uh, um, secrecy provisions of the law. Uh, on public interest, they're public interest exemptions. So that if it's the law is basically that if if a judge can be persuaded that the public interest is served uh, in greater measure by violating the act and blowing a whistle, uh, then you're not going to go to jail for 14 years. And you can bet that a lot of CSIS guys have memorized that section. Um, this is really, really dark. Yeah, and dangerous. And as, as I say, I've never seen anything like it before. Well, as I say, I'm I'm blown away by what's been happening. The evolution. This was not a surprise to me. In that, you know, the Communist Party of China has none of our interests in mind. Not one. You know, and to have any kind of naivety that they do, and globally they don't. Uh, but. Canada's played a particular role, as you outlined. Uh, we are the outlier when it comes to, uh, you know, the G7 nations, the five eyes. They've proven it. And again, uh, I'll just come back to one quick thing about uh, that's why I was so happy that Global Mail put it on the front page. In the last leaders debate and, and both 219, 221, the leaders debate, China wasn't brought up. And yeah, I, I think that's a problem. You know, yeah, I mean, not only was China not brought up, but you may remember that uh, Trudeau refused to attend a leader's oh, yes. debate on foreign policy that was hosted by the monk. Yeah, monk absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, just terrified of anybody talking about foreign policy because China is, you know, the elephant in the room. Yeah. Well, as I say, I think it's uh, the work that you're doing, as you mentioned others, it's incumbent upon all of us to become informed and really say, I mean, when you go as far as influencing the election, have a, a sophisticated program, as you say, of disinformation, of uh, literally changing outcomes. You know, at some point, uh, you're either Canadian or you're not, and you take notice. And I think it is a nonpartisan issue. I wish it wasn't. I wish, uh, I wish it, uh, I mean, the pre- uh, prime minister is handling it in a partisan way, and that shouldn't be the case. 
you know, gosh, I, I could give him 50 other ways of handling this uh, that elevates it to the importance it is. But clearly, and I think your point is so well taken about the mindset is completely different. Uh, uh, you know, sort of the idea of what uh, this government's legacy will be, you know, creates a completely different uh, reality. And we're not the better for it. And uh, we are the better for the work you're doing and others. Uh, but my gosh, uh, continue doing it because we need everybody's attention. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks so much, Michael. Yeah. And on just on the last subject, I think you're quite right. I think probably for, I don't know, 70, 80% of the, you know, liberal liberals, you know, active liberals, mm -hmm. I think it is, I think it to be very, very fair, I think it probably is a question of naivete. They're just naive. Yeah. Wow. But the people who are making the decisions on this stuff, writing the policy on this stuff, this isn't about naivete. They know exactly what yeah. they're doing. And that's the well, scary bit. I encourage people to go to the Ottawa Citizen. You can find Terry Glavin at the National Post. But here's the thing. I'm a subscriber. Therealstory.substack.com. Therealstory.substack.com. Because we need the real story. Terry Glavin, thanks so much for finding time for us. Great talking to you, Michael. The number one subject continues to be, hey, what are the central banks going to do? Are we going to lower interest rates? Are we going to pause? Are we raising interest rates? I mean, that subject never goes away. And literally, I'm watching it within the markets, within the analytical community, watching it on an hourly by hour basis. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in for this. Uh, Mike, a couple of things that occurred to me, though, and you've been talking about it. There is a difference between the situation, the economic situation in Canada and that in the U.S. Like if you look at our last three months, four months, We've got inflation into that target area. When, you know, when we compare year over year, like we did January to January, of course, it's much higher. But if you look at the three months, it's not bad. You know, it's in the target. The States ha is having a more inflationary problem. So, you know, you can see a situation where we can pause and the U.S. will again continue to rise as members of the Federal Reserve said again this week. Absolutely, Mike. And I think this diversion between the U.S. and Canada is important in a couple of ways. And a way that I noticed this week is Walmart came out with a statement. Now, this is so important. They're the largest retailer in the world. They've got 5,000 stores in the U.S., and uh, what they're saying is indicative of uh, quite a significant slowdown for their consumers and a change in consumer profile. Uh, before Christmas and last quarter of last year, a lot of their customers were 100,000 plus a year earners. Now it's back down to being working working class, if I can say that, but people who uh, have good jobs, but they just can't seem to keep up. And um, I, I think you're going to see with what the U.S. Federal Reserve is planning in the U.S., contra to Canada, is that's going to be very impactful for retail and very impactful for Walmart, which is the bellwether of the retail U.S. economy. Yeah, just another reminder, it depends on what sector we're watching. You know, uh, are we watching retail? Are we watching housing? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, but here's one thing, though. I don't want Canadians to sit there railing against us because I was just looking at uh, some reports coming out of the government and StatsCan. They showed, for example, last year, the weekly earnings increased 4.2%. I hope everyone listens to that, 4.2%. You know what, though? Uh, you look at the same period and rents, jumped nearly 6% on average, much more so in major urban centers. Or what about this? You got a 4.2% raise. Well, the cost of running your family car was up 13.4%. Food prices up 
again, 14.8%. Uh, mortgage costs, 18%. So yeah, you got your raise, you got your 4%, just as you were alluding to in the US, Mike, it doesn't cover it. It doesn't, Mike, and it takes it right out of the consumer's budget. And that's the whole thing is there's only a finite number of dollars to go around. You've got inflation. Those finite numbers are being eaten up. Um, but uh, I, I think I think reading this Walmart report is that it's indicative that it will probably lead to a recession later on in the year. And Walmart is the bellwether, the retail bellwether. And I don't think that we can ignore that or just pass by it lightly. What happens to Walmart retail is what's happening in America. The other thing you said there, I think, is one of the keys for disagreement within the analytical community, and that's the timing of any slowdown. You know, if we go back six months, they're saying, oh, you just wait, uh, you know, the market's going to take a big, or, or rather the economy is going to really slow down the second quarter, and that will give the Fed opportunity in that, and going back six months, they're saying pivot. But I think it's the timing of the recession or slowdown, a, a significant slowdown, though. Uh, that I find the big disagreement about. I mean, if you look at classic monetary theory about money being flushed into the system, well, it's being taken out of the system now. But traditionally, that's a, that's a lag. You can start taking money out and the, what's called the M2 money supply gets contracted. No, but you're still usually one, two years away from the impact of that. And I think that's where I'm seeing the disagreement. As you say, Walmart has this sort of real slowdown, but it gets translated further out in the economy. Boy, does that ever just say it so succinctly. And that's going to bring me full circle. And I'm going to come back and just repeat a little bit in maybe a word or two different of what you said at the outset. Higher U.S. consumer prices, inflation, and higher costs for rental housing and food have raised fears among executives that the U.S. Federal Reserve could further lift borrowing rate costs to cool domestic demand throughout the year, leading to an economic downturn in the second half of the year. This, we're saying the same thing, maybe in a few different words, but boy, we're on the same plane and we're using that same focal lens to say, this does not look good and it does not look right now that there's anything out there that's going to make it look any better, Mike. Let me draw on my greatest skill, and that's giving people a headache, because I'm going to give you one, one more <laughs> distinction there. Come on. <laughs> is you have to also make a distinction between service sector and goods sector. Much tougher to measure the service sector, by the way. They're guessing at a lot of that stuff. But the goods sector, yeah, it's having a greater slowdown. So a lot of people, again, pointing to that. But it doesn't, has it, has it translated to service? There's not, the evidence isn't there yet. And just to split up that good sectors for just a moment, uh, Walmart will do very well. And again, I'm just using them as the bellwether that, that they'll do very well in the grocery end where it's low margin. They don't make a lot of money. They've got to sell other retail products within the store. Grocery brings them in. But Mike, they're not going for the other products right now. Yeah. As I say, have we just confused everybody? We're saying, hey, good sector, uh, or I'm saying it's my fault, service sector, good sector, but you've got to make that decision. What's your timing? That's another huge area of disagreement. Uh, money supply contraction, you, well, you've got a whole army of economists who follow the Milton Friedman role of, you know, the, the role of uh, monetary creation, and that's saying recession, but not this year. And then you've got others. I mean, the list is just a long one. And why? Because the, the economy is complicated. You know, there's yeah. lots of sectors, lots of regions, and obviously tens of millions of people working in it. Well, I'm going to start, stop, or end with two things. 
it's the economy, stupid, and it's complicated, and that even makes it even more stupid. Now, honest to God, it's just everything rolling around in your head, but it is. It's based on so many things, Mike, because you just can't pinpoint what's going on at Walmart, but that's just one of the examples. I thought you promised you wouldn't use my nickname. Stupid. But okay, that's fine, Mike. We'll talk to you next week. Have a great week. You too, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. As Second Street's Colin Craig notes, in 1991, government spending on healthcare in Canada was about $1,683 per person. I just want to give you an idea. Fast forward to 2021, we're now at $5,573 per person. Come on, that's more than double the rate of inflation. And what did we get in terms of the tens of billions more spent? Oh, I know, we got longer waiting lists for treatment. And the result? According to the government itself, are you ready? 13,581 Canadians died last year waiting for everything. It could have been heart operations or knee surge, MRI, CT scans. 13,500. 81 Canadians died last year. By the way, deaths for people on surgical wait lists were up 24% over the last four years. I mean, come on, at some point, are we at least going to signal we've got a problem? I mean, they're just two examples, but they're tragic consequences of a system held hostage by ideology that defends the status quo basically at all costs. A system that treats their favorites, whether we're talking politicians, injured union workers, judges, Federal prisoners, members of the RCMP, they treat them far better than the rest of us when it comes to waiting for treatment. It's a system that uses wait times as a way to control costs. Boy, if there's one thing I wish people would understand, that would be it. The wait lists are on purpose. But that's the context for the quote of the week. The provincial premiers met with Prime Minister Trudeau, it was, I think it was February 7th this year. And predictably, you know what? There was not a single suggestion, not a single innovative idea presented. It was just give us more money. I mean, I I would have taken any kind of example. I mean, all you have to do is compare Canada performance to so many other developed countries. But no, it was status quo with more money all the way. Now, that's not to say a couple of provinces, I'm thinking Saskatchewan, for example, you know, have addressed the waiting list by trying to create some incentives. There are things happening there. But the system as a whole, Federal government doesn't want innovation, hasn't shown they do, and certain provinces. I think BC leads the way, by the way, in lack of innovation or interest in innovation. But that brings me to the quote of the week. Dennis King is Premier of Prince Edward Island, and at the conclusion of the summit, he stated in quotes, What's lost in the conversation that we need to focus on isn't that money is going to solve everything. It isn't just money we need. We need innovations. We need a change in how we deliver healthcare. We need to help innovate the healthcare system in many regards. And I feel the conversation over the last little while with the Council of Federation and the Prime Minister and the federal decision uh, officials, we've led Canadians to believe that money is simply going to fix this. And that is not totally accurate. We do need money to help with innovations and to get people within the system to change what they do and maybe broaden what they do. But it isn't just about money. And the sooner we can get to a conversation that deals with not just money, but about how we innovate and change healthcare, I think the better Canadians will feel. End of quote. Well, I guess my comment is amen. We so desperately need leadership in the healthcare area. How many more 
reports do we need from international organizations ranking us at the bottom or near bottom when it comes to waiting for treatment? And again, we've got the statistics on that. There's been no meaningful improvement. But the big one for me, maybe I'm old-fashioned and I care about people living or dying, but 13,581 Canadians died last year waiting for treatment. Very pleased to welcome back to the show, timingthemarket.ca, Don Vialo with me. Don, appreciate you taking the time. And you know, I got a boatload of questions for you. And one of them comes out of your work that you said the first six months of the year, you're kind of looking for some action, at least on the metal side of things, which uh, is music to my ears, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit. Exactly. Historically, the best time to own the mines and metal stocks is from around December of each year, right through until uh, June of each year. And that trade is actually acting quite nicely already. That's one of the trades that we offered at the end of the year last year. Uh, mm-hmm. Already the uh, the XME, which is a way of playing it, uh, it's up nine uh, percent. But the, the odds are very good that this particular ETF on the mines and metals will continue going higher right through until approximately June of this year. Uh, and uh, sorry, I could have started with this, but also again, when you were with us last, we talked about the presidential cycle. Just give us a quick reminder of where we're at in that presidential uh, cycle, and what probability and what seasonality tells you about it. It's fascinating. Historically, the best time to own both U.S. and Canadian equity markets is from around the middle of the second year of the presidential election cycle. Of course, that the middle of of the presidential cycle was approximately last October. Since that time, both the, the Toronto and the uh, U.S. equity markets have done very, very well. You've seen the uh, S&P 500, for example, it was up uh, approximately 14% since that time, and the TSE Composite is up about 13%. But probably more important is what happens during the third year of the U.S. presidential cycle. That's the strongest year of the four-year cycle. Historically, Going back to 1930, would you believe, uh, based on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the the average has increased 14% per year during the third year of the U.S. presidential cycle. Wow. Uh, by the way, timingthemarket.ca, you get an update every day from Don. Uh, sorry, I'm just, as you know, I'm just throwing stuff at you left, right, and center here. Uh, but... Uh, let's talk about oil for a moment. You know, let me just throw that out you quickly because we've had this sort of settled down period. Uh, what would what would you tell us about that from at least a seasonal point of view? And then we could talk technically. You know, the other tools that you use. Well, for the sake of giving you updated information, I just bought the XEG. That's the Energy Sector ETF on the Toronto Exchange just yesterday. So. Clearly, I'm very biased on this particular idea. Mm-hmm. Historically, energy stocks go up quite nicely, both in U.S. and equity markets, right between now and May of each year. And it took a little bit of time to get things going this year, but it's finally starting to come through. One of the things to watch very closely is the price of, West, uh, of the Western Canadian crude price. It's gone from $46 per barrel at U.S. in December to right now, it's $58 US per barrel. It's already going up quite significantly. And because we're in the period of seasonal strength, when demand for for oil and gas increases as we get closer to the summertime, look for the that sector to move, continue to move nicely higher. 
I feel like I'm a machine gunner here just throwing stuff at you. But, you know, that leads into two other things. One, I'll start with, you know, you look at the weakness in natural gas. And I'm wondering if uh, seasonally, seasonally, does that provide an opportunity or what are you seeing on the technical charts when we've come down this far? Interesting. Uh, right now, uh, uh, natural gas has a bit of a problem. There's lots of, en- of natural gas around. And so that's been the problem. There's been an oversupply of uh, natural gas. But the other thing that's kind of interesting is that just during the last couple of days, we've seen the price of natural gas trading on the U.S. markets finally starting to show technical signs of bottoming right around the $2 per MCF uh, level. And remember, natural gas prices a year ago were trading around $10 per mm-hmm. MCF. So they're heavily oversold. And so the possibility of a seasonal upswing in uh, gassy stocks as well as oily stocks, particularly in Canada, are actually very, very good this year. Uh, and one of the other things I always give you credit for, because you were the one years ago telling me about this trade, and that was looking at wholesale gasoline, and it made perfect sense to me. People don't drive as much in the winter. Then they're going to have to switch grades you know, into summer grade, which shuts down refining capacity to some degree, and then we're going to start driving a lot. So, I mean, the prob- the, uh, the number of times that that worked out on a seasonal basis, just broadly taking the seasonals and going, you know, it, the, per- the propensity for it to follow that path was huge. Well, I have a confession to make. Uh, remember the end of last year, I recommended the purchase of gasoline uh, futures, uh, or mm-hmm. you can actually do it through an ETF, as simple as UGA. And uh, the confession is that UGA has done absolutely nothing since the end of last year. However, you're right. All the signs of a recovery in gasoline prices coming to the uh, seasonal driving period into summer is getting set up. The optimal time to own gasoline and gasoline futures is from the end of March until the end of June. On average, uh, UGA has gone up 8% per period uh, since it started uh, trading about 14 years ago. So it's getting lined up. It's okay now to start nibbling, uh, but you may want to just really try to catch the the low points over the next uh, month or so for a really good trade coming into the summer. So again, uh, you play it or play it, you invest in it and trade it from UGA as the symbol. That's correct. That's the, yeah, just want to make sure everybody understands that. And as you say, it's, you're not taught on this one. We are not, I'm not talking long-term. I'm talking, it's been a consistent winner at a very high probability. Uh, you know, it doesn't guarantee anything, but you, the probabilities in your side. And then as you do, you then throw in the technical charts, you know, and at timing the dot, timing the market.ca, you know, to see, okay, am I getting that kind of action that I'm looking for? But I just, exactly. I, I, you were the only person I ever t- heard talk about that, you know, until you had done it quite a while, then somebody else, you know, then other people start, but it was Don Velo who put me on to that trade. And as I say, the probability has been large. We'll see what happens, but that's why I always love to talk to you about that. On the charts, uh, UGA is forming a nice base pattern, hasn't broken out yet. But watch it very closely because it's getting set up for that typical summer trade. Yeah. Okay. So let me, I I had to get that out of my system, (laughs) (laughs) but let's, I want to come back. Okay. A couple of more things before I let you go. And again, I just go through this laundry list of people say, well, what does Don think about this? So I've got to go to the precious metals. I've got to go to gold, uh, you know, and what you're seeing right now in the markets. Yeah. It was interesting this year. Remember uh, during the conference call at the end of last year, 
we mentioned that gold was in the season. Right. Uh, there's, there's two periods of seasonal strength for gold and gold stocks. One is from mid-December right through until the end of February. And the other one is from the middle of June till September. So at, when we had the call last time, we were right in the middle of the mid-December to February uh, uh, seasonal trade. Mm -hmm. What actually happened is gold and gold stocks took off during the month of January. And by the end of January, uh, XGD, which is the gold ETF trading on the Toronto Exchange, was up 11%. But then something happened, something very important that happened to gold and gold stocks. We saw the US dollar, which had been weak up to that point in time, bottom and start to move higher. That was the typical sign of you've had the trade in gold for that season. Now is the time to take some good profits in, in the XGD. Yeah. Interesting stuff as always. Uh, Don, uh, sorry, you, you sort of preempted me there a little bit with uh, anticipating. Uh, I just wanted to talk and finish off with the US dollar, Canadian dollar kind of relationship or, or just broadly, either one. Yeah, it's been fascinating. Uh, since the beginning of February, the US dollar index has been strengthening. And by definition, the Canadian dollar has been weakening. Now, this is not typical. Typically, at this time of year, the Canadian dollar right around the beginning of March, right through until around the end of April, the Canadian dollar strengthens relative to the US dollar. Of course, that could still happen. But for now, uh, the advantage is to own US securities with the US dollar strengthening relative to the Canadian dollar. Well, and as I say, you can get an update uh, every day. You can go to timingthemarket.ca. That adds the technical element. Also, you talk seasonals there too, but it adds the technical element. And uh, I always find it very uh, elucidating and helps me with my sort of conceptualization of what's going on. Yeah, thanks, uh, Mike. It's been fun. Well, great to have you. Don Vialo, timingthemarket.ca. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Just a couple of primers here. In 2020, Canada's birth rate fell to a record low of an average of 1.4 children per woman. That's well below the 2.1 rate needed to maintain a population without immigration. And that necessitates Canada's immigration increase. We're also in a period, by the way, where the number of Canadians over 65 is greater than the number 15 and under, which has significant implications for the workforce and the economy, and also has implications for the Canada Pension Plan which was predicated, always predicated, the basis was we will always have more people entering the workforce than leaving it and entering retirement. Now, further strain is put on the system because we're living a lot longer. Now we got to pay benefits out a lot longer. You know, 1967, when the Canada Pension Plan was introduced, life expectancies for males was about 72 years old, females 76. Well, we're living longer today. Collecting CPP longer for men, it's about nine years longer when they instituted the plan. Ten years longer for females. Plus, here's another issue. We already have a labor shortage. I mean, right now, it's estimated there might be as much as 800,000 plus job openings. Now, the government estimates that immigration accounts for almost 100% of Canada's labor force. Growth. The growth in the labor force. And by 2036, immigrants will represent up to 30% of Canada's population. That's up from 20.7% in 2011. The bottom line is the country does need more people, which is the rationale for the increased immigration targets. And by the way, Canada set an immigration record last year in 2022, 437,000, uh, 9% more than the record previous record, 2021. Government's target this year, 447,000, uh, 451,000 in 2024. But here's the thing. This also comes at a time when the healthcare system 
can't handle the current population. Despite increased spending, the wait times for patients is already what is considered medically unacceptable. As I mentioned in the quote of the week, 13,581 Canadians died. I mean, waiting for everything from heart operations or knee surgery or MRI, CT scans. I mean, it's incredible. There's already a shortage of family doctors. This is with the current population. And I, this is my point. I haven't seen the federal government offer any plan for the healthcare system to deal with an influx of new people, some of which are already here, by the way. They could be on a student visa and now are going to stay or in the process of applying for permanent residency. But still, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be moving into the country. Where's our plan for health care? Because it ain't working right now. It's the same with housing where supply shortages have been with us for years in major urban centers like Vancouver and Toronto. You know, last week, Desjardins put out a report that concluded, we need to add another 100,000 housing starts on top of something like 215,000 starts already forecast to meet the increased demand, 100,000. What's clear is that all the talk to date, and we've had plenty of it about affordable housing, hasn't solved the problem. And yet, we don't have a specific plan for the three levels of government coordinating say, the increase in immigration and demand uh, on housing. And given the problems of affordable housing, lack of supply, healthcare wait time, shortage of family doctors have been with us for a year, I'm not sure why anyone would have confidence that the people who, for example, can't get clean drinking water to First Nations reserves in some instances, and they promised for decades, or the people responsible for lengthy passport delays or lost luggage, you think they're going to solve the problem? You know, it's, it's an incredible challenge. But again, I don't see it talked about that we do need newcomers coming into this country. We need it for the economy. We need it for the Canada Pension Plan and a lot of other reasons. But where's the plan? Where's the realistic plan that says that'll create more strain on housing? That'll create more uh, strain on the healthcare system. What are we going to do about it? You know, chatting earlier with Michael Levy about interest rates, I mean, there's no sector that got hit harder or more instantly than real estate and all the sort of ripple effect that that creates. I want to get Ozzy Jurek in here because, Ozzy, if we go back a few months, you were warning about some sort of dear to my heart, and that's liquidity challenges. Well, some of the biggest corporations in the United States, Zillow and a company called Open Door and, and certainly BlackRock, they bought single-family homes, and it was a great thing from 21 to 22. And then in the middle last year, it stopped. And we talked a couple of months ago or more, or more that, you know, they were in trouble. And they were blowing out these houses. We even said as an investor, you might want to call your realtor in the city that you want to buy and see whether Zillow or BlackRock or Open Door has something for sale. And now their stocks crashed. And... The, the whole area of liquidity is such a big topic that you always uh, say to people. Hey, look, I got to come back to Open Door just for a second because <laughs> you were speaking about their stock price. And this is such a great example of when you take the snapshot, you'll be reporting different things. So, I, I, of course, I know you know the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the crazy thing is I read in the headline, you know, Open Door is up 102% in its stock. Great. And it's true. It went from $1.05 to $2.10. Great. But they don't tell you that it went from 32 to $1 first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, it, have you seen the other thing they did there, though, Ozzy, is limit uh, the amount that you could redeem. We saw that also, which is, of course, part of a liquidity challenge. 
Yeah, and we talked about that in early January where we advised uh, to, to listeners to be prudent uh, in your MIC or in your real estate investment trust. I mean, look, these companies, it's not that they're bad. It's just simply they're invested in real estate. And if you want to get your money back by, you know, saying, well, I'm a little worried, they can't give it to you back. I mean, even a company like BlackRock, as you mentioned, is a huge, huge, huge fund stopped redemption on their $5 billion REIT. You know, so we, we, we advised early to maybe take your cash out if you're going to need it because you might be in there for a couple of years. And it's just part of the reality of that market, uh, you know, that you have to accept that as part of the risk is the instant redemption or instant selling is, isn't possible in a lot of environments. That's all I'm saying here. But it's one to be important, Bart. Hey, I want to go to something else completely different, Ozzy, because you've been talking about our foreign property ban. I'm not sure if you caught this. Down in the States, it's also got people's attention. And I think this is an interesting part of this, is could we put a foreign property ban and not expect at least some talk about it, let alone retaliation? And I'm seeing down in the States where all of a sudden they're talking about this, that they're saying, hey, Canadians aren't letting us buy property. Maybe we should stop them buying ours. Well, it's, it's, it's actually a specific area of our bans that they're attacking. It isn't just the foreign buyer right uh, this is what we argued all the time for a couple of years mike you and i we talked about how would they feel if they said okay everybody in palm springs every canadian is now no longer allowed to buy but we put in another innocuous tax in there that's called the underused housing tax and that's directly targeting foreign property owners by paying they have to pay a one percent tax on property that they already have owned maybe for years and years. It's not so much aimed at new people, it's just people that are in there now. And Mike, in, in Florida alone, there's about 500,000 Canadians that own property in the state of Florida. Imagine if they said, as one of the, uh, the, the senators said, he's advocating a new tax on Canadians who own property in the United States as a retaliatory measure. Yeah, and again, you think of those areas, you just mentioned Florida, but of course, Palm Springs, you've got Phoenix, you've got Scotts, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> many of these areas are, you know, have a ton of Canadian buyership. And, and actually, it's, it shows the good side, because it was Canadians who rescued those markets in 2010, 2011, 2012. You know, so it's, it's just interesting that a lot of times politicians put in policies and they don't look through some of the consequences that may occur. And I just found that interesting that this did not go unnoticed in the States. Well, in fact, he says, you know, he is, he is the, the Republican, Brian Higgins, he, he's saying, look, when, when we don't really don't want to do that. We've got to solve that problem because he thinks it's a race to the bottom. And I agree with him. The, but it's funny, a Canadian tax lawyer, Jonathan Garbutt, says, I doubt the government will collect much in the way of tax because the biggest collection is going to be from the failure to file penalties for people who didn't even realize that they had to file, you know, because, look, the, the whole foreign buyer thing, rules were put out 10 days before they became in, in effect and it's still confusing for the for the total ban now come up with a one percent tax which is you know vacant or underused we don't know what underused means and all of those kind of things why do we do this <laughs> because because i think they sit there and they think about simplistic solutions to you know some yeah. deep problems and we know that we have a problem with supply and, you know, we look at that Desjardins uh, report last week that says we better increase the projected housing starts 
at something like 212, 212,000, 215,000, they say, you better bump it by another 100,000 if you want to kind of even tread water here. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, my shocking stat, you know, as I mentioned here, was about, you know, the size of the immigration and the no plan for health care, no plan for housing. And we'll feel it, you know, in a market that's already short in major urban centers. Well, and the crazy thing is, I think we mentioned Kamal, Kamal McNeil at, from, from MLA, and he said, look, we need so many housing that just to break even, we have to build as many houses as, as put the whole suburb of Burnaby <laughs> replace it. That's how many houses we need just to break even, you know. Well, as I say, we've been chatting about that. It was a shocking stat because it is shocking. But we'll do more on that as we go, Ozzy. And just want to remind people to go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. You get that great real estate advice. It's free. Just put in your email. They'll send it directly to you, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And, and you know, I was wondering the other day, I said, when my kids become wild and unruly, I use a nice, safe playpen. And when they're finished, I climb out. <laughs> Ozzy, by, by the way, speaking of jokes, the polar plunge, the clock is ticking. Oh, my goodness. Next Saturday, March 4th, English Bay. You, me, and as I said, I keep making this invitation, Ozzy, to you know our listeners and our readers on uh, Money Talks tweets and Michael Campbell's Facebook and Mike's Money Talks.ca. I said, hey, if you want to join us, you know, come on board. Well, we only got one taker. That was my brother, and that was under threat. <laughs> no, he was a very willing participant. But I'm just saying. So it looks like so far there'll be the three of us, unless other people sign up. But uh, yeah, and after this past week's weather, it truly will be a polar plunge. <laughs> The beach has snow on it today, so <laughs> oh, can I cry already? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you know me. I certainly will. <laughs> I won't waste any time. But again, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You've got right where you can donate. We hope you do. It's obviously a worthy cause, obviously, Ozzy, and I think that. But uh, yeah, go on, click, donate. It would be much appreciated. We're about halfway there to our target, so we need some more help. Let's go live to the trading desk. I'm going to bring Victor Darren here right now. Vic, Mike and I, Mike Levy and I were chatting earlier about these, you know, changes in sentiment. And you were talking about that going back a few weeks, saying you think there was a key uh, turn date in all of these markets. But I want to ask one specific question first before I get more on that. And that is, what are the markets saying? I mean, you know, the markets price in expectations about what they think interest rates are doing. So, for example, what are the markets telling us right now? about what to expect in the interest rates in the U.S. first and then go to Canada? Well, the market is reacting to changes in inflation. Okay, we're getting the incoming data. This past month here has been a little hotter than maybe people were expecting or hoping for. So then the market says, okay, if that's the case, what's the Fed going to do? And right now the, the market in America sees the Fed raising rates by another 75 basis points and then keeping them there. For the rest of the year. So again, three quarters of a percent to be added on there, staying there for the rest of the year. What are the markets saying in Canada about what they think the Bank of Canada is going to do? Well, that's that's really interesting because, of course, at the January 25 meeting, uh, the last meeting for the Bank of Canada, they raised rates and said, OK, we're going to just sit on our hands for a while now and just see whether or not the lagged effect of what we did last year you know, is going to hit the economy. Uh, the market says, no, no, you're not going to be sitting on your hands. You're going to be raising rates, buddy. Uh, you're going to have rates up by another 25 basis points by June. And then by the end of the year, you're going to have them up by uh, like a total of 50 basis points from where we are now. 
Yeah, and that, I mean, that's obviously huge news for people. I mean, uh, we're still getting people whose mortgages, a five-year mortgage have been matured. You know I mean? Now they're renewing. You know, mm-hmm. that process continues at much higher rates. So another half percent, you know, my goodness, that makes big news, uh, obviously in the variable rate more so. But uh, so, yeah, that's important. And let's come back to the other thing here. I talked, uh, you talked about it, but February 2nd, you said, Mike, on this show, you said, look, I think markets are changing. This is a key date to keep an eye on. And uh, we warned about gold, for example. Well, gold has certainly had a key turn. You know, it turned uh, and many other markets. So give me a quick review on that, because uh, that was obviously a very good call. So one of the things I pay a lot of attention to is what I would call inter-market relationships or correlations. And in simple terms, if one market does something and the other market does something, kind of moves in lockstep, you know, I, I pay attention to that. And I also, also pay attention to when that relationship breaks down. Okay, here's, a, here's my essence of what a key turn date is. If a number or several major markets all reverse course on a, on or around the same date, the market is telling you something big just happened. So I, I maybe, you know, there might be three or four key turn dates in a year. You know, this would be my feeling. And I thought we had a, a big one because coming through January, the market was kind of getting used to the fact that, okay, yeah, the economy is going to slow and the Fed's going to start to cut rates. And that's that was the view. And then this incoming inflation data started to paint a different picture and all the markets changed. You know, the U.S. dollar went higher. Uh, the interest rates went higher. The stock market started to wobble, but not much. And the commodity market was weaker, particularly, as you say, with gold. For the, for the gold market, if you have an environment where interest rates are going up, and the U.S. dollar is going up, man, that's a, that's a tough environment for gold. Actually, I'd say it's toxic. And gold hit that high uh, on the 2nd of February, and we're, we've fallen about $160 since then. Yeah, and again, it didn't break out. Uh, I know that's what got me cautious at that point. As you say, it didn't seem to want to go higher. But again, it comes back to that date you were uh, talking about. So let's let's change that and look forward here. Uh, what kind of things are you, you know, it's not a recommendation, it's just stuff, stuff that you're looking at. Uh, well, what I'm, I, I tell you what, you know, when we talked last week, I said, gee, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled here. You know, like the stock market get, didn't get the memo or something. You know, I even mm-hmm. hauled out that old chestnut about how, uh, people say the bond market is the smart money and the stock market. Well, not so much, you know, Yeah. but, but the stock markets have been particularly, but I'm going to point to the European market. It's been sizzling. Okay, and it's still it's it's higher. The European market stock market's still higher. The Toronto market's only off about three percent from the highs we had in in uh, the beginning part of February. Stock market's been kind of sticky, although this week it's kind of like they finally got the memo as interest rates continue to rise. And to put that in perspective, by the way, the two year note in Canada and in the United States is trading at a 16 year high yield. I mean. 16 years. We haven't seen interest rates in this level for that period of time. So, you know, going ahead, I would say if this sentiment continues, like the inflation data keeps coming in a little hotter than expected, so the Fed's expected to keep pushing rates higher, that's that's not going to be a good environment for the stock market. The whole thing always is, as you and I like to talk about, how much is already in the price. And I don't think the, st- the stock market didn't get the memo. I think the stock market's saying, okay, 
if that's the worst you can do, you know, don't like it, but we can we can get up off the mat from here and go higher. Well, I'll tell you, it's an incredible environment here. And again, coming back to what we've been talking about for a couple of years is that it's different in forecasting because we're really just talking what the central bank and the government uh, fiscal policy will be. I mean, that's just had such a monstrous influence. And that's why, uh, you know, I was saying to Michael earlier, that's why every week you've got to come back and say, well, what happened on the rate market this week? You know, uh, because the influence and the ripple effect is huge. You know, most of the time I'm... I've got a very short-term view on the market. Like I, I don't, I don't make a decision to buy or sell something today on mm-hmm. where I think the market will be at the end of the year. But I can't avoid having those kind of thoughts. We call it a, a demographic shift. And one of the things I've been really puzzling over later lately is now there's way more millennials than there are boomers, and yeah. millennials are going to trade the markets different than we will. You know, they're the ones maybe that chases Tesla and causes the share price to double, you know, from January to the middle of February. And I think the millennials, just because of their age, are going to be much more inclined to take risk than us boomers. And I know most of the folks that are listening to you and me are boomers, you know, yeah. but but watch out. Those millennials are going to they're going to throw you some curveballs. Yeah, there you go. I'm thinking to myself, I'm 111 years old. So yeah, I know some of that market history. Vic, thanks very much for taking the time. VictorAdare.ca, VictorAdare.ca. Have a great week. Hey, thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, first I've got to say, and I do this regularly, but I am astounded that it seems like at least the majority of us don't get phased by relentless stories of government misspending or outright wasting our tax dollars. Come on, last week I talked about the Minister of International Trade, Mary Ng, paid a friend, what, 22000 plus for an eight-hour communications training session on Zoom? Are you kidding me? But not a lot of response to that, so maybe not for this week's either. Do you remember the scandal involving Leif uh, Maroof, who was listed as senior consultant to the Canada Canadian Media Advocacy Centre? It turns out, by the way, the Canadian Media Advocacy Center is just simply him and his wife. But he was the one who was charged with uh, giving workshops on anti-racism. And then they found out he had uh, tweeted this huge series of offensive messages. I mean, calling Jews things like loud mouth bags of human feces. I mean, it, it is a big story. Uh, and through the Community Media Advocacy Center, Maouf and his wife received 130000 of your tax dollars, my tax dollars to conduct these anti-racism workshops. I mean, I think that, and I think you just can't make this stuff up. And it turns out that the Heritage Department didn't even do 10 minutes of due diligence before it handed over the money. And over a year after Maruf was banned by Twitter for his violence and anti-Semitic tweets, then it took, finally, a year later, the federal government canceled. I mean, when Heritage Department personnel was asked, by, uh, you know, why they didn't do a cursory, ba- a cursory back down check before handing over the money. Well, they didn't have an explanation, no excuse. And I think it may be a bigger story here in terms of how often our tax dollars are spent in such a nonchalant manner. Here's the latest chapter, though. It turns out, as Blacklock's reporter notes, Thornhill, Ontario consultant Mark Goldberg, who had thoroughly documented Leif Maouf's statements, including dozens of screenshots of tweets in which Maouf ranted about the Jews. And, you know, this is after that. He did that on April 20th. Dozens of civil servants and MPs knew about this raging anti-Semitic. But here's the thing. That was April 20th. Yet the contract wasn't canceled until September 23rd. 
Again, no explanation. But here's the part you should also note. This one blew me away. It wasn't just $130,000 for anti-racism workshops. Maruf and his wife's community media advocacy center had actually received, are you sitting down, 602000 tax dollars. How could you do that? No oversight, obviously. No follow-up, obviously. But there were no measures or goals to determine what taxpayers got for the money. That's as noteworthy as anything, because that's how our money is getting spent. This is not an exception. All you have to do is read any Auditor General's report, and you'll find out that this happens on a regular basis with our tax dollars. But as I said, until a lot more people raise a fuss and seem to care, I don't think much is going to change. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Again, let me just press you one more time. We need the help. We're about halfway there on our goal for Special Olympics and the Polar Plunge. I'm glad to see some people participating with me, and I'm not looking forward to it at all. But uh, if that's what it takes to raise some money and put the spotlight on people with intellectual disabilities, so be it. So if you could do us a favor, give help to the people who truly deserve it. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. mikesmoneytalks.ca. It's right there. Click on the note. And of course, make your donation. Much appreciated. In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.